Listener Production. It's the ultimate tragedy where someone jumps in the water to rescue someone who's drowning and they save that person's life, but they lose their own. And there's been four of these tragedies already this month in Australia, including one on the weekend, Katrina. Yeah, so in this episode, we're looking at why and how this happens. Why does the rescuer often die and how can you avoid it? What is the right thing to do when you see someone drowning? A flotation device is really important. So that might be a life jacket, a pool noodle, a boogie board, a surfboard, but it can also be those non-traditional things, uh, a ball, uh, an esky, a soft drink bottle that's been emptied out, something that can hold a bit of air. Yeah, that's our briefing right after today's headlines. Here they are. It's Tuesday, January 31. Over 40 people have been killed and at least 150 are injured in Pakistan after a suicide bomber targeted a mosque. The attacker detonated his suicide vest in the mosque, which is in a police compound, meaning most of the victims were police. The commander for the Pakistan Taliban has claimed responsibility for this attack. And a group of current and former politicians have launched a no campaign opposing the Indigenous voice to Parliament. The big question about this stuff is what has it actually achieved? That's Indigenous man and former Labor boss turned Liberal Party member Warren Mundine, who's leading the no case committee. He was speaking there on Channel 7. So we're talking about the voice here, which is the Indigenous body that would advise Parliament on policies affecting Indigenous people. We'll all be voting on it at a referendum later this year. And I guess this is a new group of people opposing it, the No Case Committee. Uh, it's got six members on this committee, including Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price, who's Indigenous, and former Federal Labor MP Gary Johns. And they're arguing that The Voice is going to chew up funding that could be used to fix problems on the ground and that it could negatively affect democracy. I guess we're all expecting some vigorous debate around this. And, and, you know, I think that's important to tease out the details for what this voice will actually be comprised of and whether, as some people are pushing for, it is going to be merely symbolic or actually have teeth and, and proper meaning and, and really agitate change. So, you know, I guess we're going to find out more about this as both the yes and the no campaigns put together their cases for us. Uh, I think that all kicks off late February, the 23rd of February. But I I think debate is healthy as long as it doesn't become offensive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the yes campaign really need to, you know, put out their arguments. They need to explain why people should vote for this. I think the problem is that the the no campaign's got out ahead of them. So yeah. Peter Dutton's fired off this open letter right at the start of the year before Anthony Albanese had even announced how and when this would all take place. So they haven't given it the best start by attacking it before the campaign's already begun. But yeah, they do have to make their arguments and win the Australian public over. Over 40,000 Chinese international students are about to rush back to Australia. So this is after the Chinese government effectively told them to go back to the country they're studying in by banning them from studying online at overseas universities. This snap decision came without warning, leaving thousands of students living in China but still enrolled in Australian universities, scrambling to return here by the start of semester, which is in just a few weeks' time. We were taken by surprise. Uh, We were hoping a longer transition period. 
That's CEO of International Education Association of Australia, Phil Honeywood. He was speaking to Channel 7. I really feel for those students in China, Tom, who uh, thought that they could keep living there and studying in Australia and, and haven't sorted out visas or a place to live or, or anything. Yeah, what a wild ride they've had. They've been locked down in China in COVID zero, and then all of a sudden they're like, right, get out of here, get back to the countries where you've been studying yeah. after three years. Um, one of the concerns at this end is accommodating them all because they're going to fly into these cities that already have really tight rental markets at the moment, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in particular, and put further pressure on prices there. And the former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has claimed that Russia's Vladimir Putin threatened to kill him with a missile. You know, he, he sort of, he threatened me at one point and said, you know, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but uh, with a missile, it would only take a minute or something like that, you know. So that's Boris Johnson speaking to the BBC in a new doco about Putin's interactions with world leaders in the lead up to the war with Ukraine. So the former UK Prime Minister claims a comment was made just before the invasion in February last year, but the Kremlin has denied that Putin made that threat. That is some missile that can travel from Russia to the UK in a minute. Yeah, and pinpoint Boris Johnson where wherever <laughs> he might be. <laughs> I guess he, he'd be easy to find. He, he <laughs> was always on TV, basically. And Bill Gates has given a fascinating Australian television interview where he admitted he should not have spent time with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, this is, you're going way back in mm -hmm. time. But yeah, I, New audience. I will say for the, you know, oh, over 100 times, yeah, I shouldn't have had uh, dinners with him. I thought that was so carefully said, didn't mm. you, Tom? The way that he kept being pushed about having a quote-unquote relationship with Epstein, but he kept coming back to, it was dinner, it was yeah. dinner. It was dinner. Yeah, he kept wanting to clarify that it wasn't some sort of ongoing relationship. When you hear that very specifically, and you're, you heard the pause as well as he just put that phrase together, dinners with him, um, it makes you think that he's hiding something. Yeah, so also during this uncomfortable interview, Gates said he complained to tech companies about the COVID conspiracy theories that were being spread about him online. Those theories were spread by anti-vax campaigners accusing him of using vaccines to control people while others said he wanted to insert microchips into people. Uh, he said, though, that he thinks the future of social media is bright and the next generation is going to be a bit more savvy about how they approach things. Speaking of social media, he also chipped in a little bit about Elon Musk. Mm. Uh, he said that um, Mr. Musk has done a lot of great work in his time, but he's not sure that Twitter is the best use of his time now. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic. Yeah, that's a fairly obvious um, statement. Most people, especially <laughs> Tesla investors. Yes. All right. In a moment, we're talking about uh, the drownings this summer. Try to picture 339 people all standing together in a room. That is how many people lost their lives last year in Australia to drowning. That figure is also the biggest number of deaths in a decade. And this year's off to a particularly bad start. Yeah, and there's a particularly tragic type of drowning that we want to talk about in this briefing. It's a situation where someone jumps in to rescue someone else and then dies in the process. Now, normally that happens five times a year, but... 
In this month of January alone, there's already been four. There was one on the weekend in Sydney at Cronulla. A father of six jumped in to save two other men and died in the process while the other two men survived. And another one at Naruma on the New South Wales South Coast where an off-duty police officer saved his son from a rip and then drowned himself. And then a third one happened at Lennox Head where an Irish father died after successfully rescuing his daughter. Yeah, so the four in total, including that one in Cronulla. So we're going to explain why this happens and how to avoid it. We're speaking to Dr Amy Pedden, who's a research fellow at the University of New South Wales. She's a leader in drowning prevention research. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Is it concerning that we've already seen four types of these drowning deaths in the first month of this year? Yes, it is quite concerning. On average, we have five to six drownings. Uh, we call them bystander rescuer drownings. So where uh, an untrained rescuer goes in to, to rescue someone, often a loved one, and ends up drowning themselves. So we have five to six on average a year. So to see four already this summer within the space of a month is really quite concerning. When I read about this particular type of drowning, uh, I find it so heartbreaking in particular because the motive of that person is so pure and honourable. What are the common reasons why the rescuer dies while the people they were rescuing survive? It's an issue born out of pure altruism and pure love often because it's often someone who's going in to rescue a loved one, usually a parent rescuing a child. I mean, there are some things we can do to prevent this kind of rescue needing to occur. Uh, all the incidents we've seen so far were unpatrolled beaches, rip current related. So swimming at a patrolled beach where someone else is there to help, who's trained, who has equipment, uh, is really important. But when we have no other choice and we have to go in and rescue, people often don't take a flotation device or something that floats with them. Um, so if they manage to get out to the person who's drowning, they can grab onto them and panic. Um, but oftentimes a lot of people will come in and go to the aid of the person who was initially drowning and kind of disregard or, or focus uh, secondarily on the person that went out to rescue. The adrenaline wears off. They're just exhausted. They're often battling quite difficult conditions. They might get stuck in a rip as well. And unfortunately, the phenomenon tends to be that the person who was initially in trouble ends up surviving and the person that goes in to help is the one that ends up drowning. Okay, drill down a bit more on those factors. So you said that often the the bystanders of the rescue will focus more on the person who was initially in trouble and then neglect to give much attention to the person who jumped in. That's a key factor? Yeah, I mean, it's often the person who was initially in trouble survives and the rescuer drowns. So I think there's a number of factors and that exhaustion and adrenaline wearing off and, and not taking a flotation device to help you if you've got to, you know, look after someone else in the water is really important. You know, in some of these scenarios, we've seen surfers who are around. So surfers are often the ones that help in these kind of scenarios. Surfer, you know, has a flotation device being their board. They're usually out when uh, surf lifesavers aren't or they're outside the flags. So we've seen surfers come to the aid and they usually take the, the person who is drowning or that, that child usually in these scenarios, they take them in first and come back out and often find the other person um, drowned. And in that moment, you've got these third party bystanders. What? They, they literally end up taking the person in trouble grabbing them out of the water, but leaving that other person there? I mean, how does that particular dynamic usually play out in these situations? 
So these people are are helping. They're still trying to help, but I guess they look at the severity of the situation uh, and take the person most in trouble first. And maybe often in these scenarios, like I said, it's an adult and a child, a parent and a child. So we often think the child would be more vulnerable. Take the child in first, come back, and the adult has drowned because they they also got into trouble in the water. It's just an incredibly tragic scenario, and we try to give this logical advice, but we fully recognise that these situations are very emotive. Logic flies out the window. If it's a child or your loved one in trouble in the water, you're often going to run in and help and logic will go out the window. One of the statistics that really struck me too when I was looking into this is that I think it's 85% of the time the drowning victim is a male. It's quite often the dad that gets out there. And I guess there's a bit of a presumption there too that dads are super strong and capable. Physiologically, what happens when that adrenaline wears off and, and how much time do you have in the water before it is a risk of a fatality? So I think physiologically, like we've said, it's the exhaustion kicking in. Uh, If you are stuck in a rip and you're trying to swim across the rip or against the rip to try and get to someone in trouble, that's incredibly exhausting. Uh, You know, no matter how strong you are, the ocean is stronger. The ocean is more powerful. You know, to try and keep your head above water when you're really tired and you're stuck in a rip, it is really tiring. So drowning can happen very, very quickly. And it's really important, I guess, that we take safety precautions to make sure that an incident like this doesn't happen. So swimming at patrolled beaches, having a flotation device, even an esky or a pool noodle in your kit that you take to the beach with your sunscreen and your towel is really important. Um, But just, I guess, recognising that drowning is quick and quiet and it doesn't look like it looks in the movies. It's often people... They say it looks like a, a climbing an invisible ladder. So everything's happening under the water to keep that person's head up. And that's really, really tiring. So as soon as your airway is impaired and you're starting to breathe in water, then that's when the drowning process starts. And it's, I guess, we want to avoid that from happening. But if someone is is unconscious due to drowning, then starting CPR with compressions as soon as possible is really important. Do you think we need a bit of a re-education on, on how we look at these scenarios and that we need to, you know, when you see two people in the water, the initial drowning victim and the rescuer, that as soon as that rescuer is in there, they need to be considered as a drowning victim as well and treated with the same or, you know, almost as much care as the person who was initially at risk of drowning. I think we need more education on water safety and drowning prevention regardless in this country. So like I said, these scenarios this summer have been so tragic but very typical unfortunately of what we see so an unpatrolled beach or after patrols are finished you have no option but to go in because surf lifesavers are 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 not there or they're finished up for the day understanding how to spot rips and what to do if you get caught in one we know i think that kind of education could really help it is a such a high stress quick fast situation that i don't blame anyone at all people are just going in and trying to help But yeah, it is a tragic scenario where we see this happen time and again. So more water safety education in general is really uh, will be very valuable in in a country like Australia. So if listeners to this podcast were to take one key lesson from that discussion about uh, the risk of rescuers drowning, is it that if they're going to go in, they need to take a flotation device? Is that the most important message? 
Ideally, we make sure that somebody else on the beach, you've called for help, that someone's calling emergency services or trying to get the surfer that's up the beach to come down. You know, hopefully there's someone else that can help. But if you need to go in, I think you try and do so within your limitations. uh, And really a flotation device is really important. So that might be a life jacket, a pool noodle, a boogie board, a surfboard, but it can also be those non-traditional things, uh, a ball, uh, an esky, a soft drink bottle that's been emptied out, something that can hold a bit of air, pool noodle. So I think, you know, throwing something that is a, a, can work as a flotation device in your bag, like I said, with your towel and your sunscreen, that would be a great place to start. See, these are things that I guess most people would have on them on a, a day at the beach. And uh, look, honestly, I hadn't even thought about using something like an empty water bottle or a ball. So that is awesome advice. I guess we need to get to that bigger picture of why these drownings are happening in the first place and why we've had such a big increase, particularly last year's uh, figures from the Royal Life Saving Society. I know that a lot of friends of mine who've got young children, their kids are way behind their older siblings in terms of water safety because so many swimming classes were called off during the pandemic. Is that a factor and is also the fact that we've had a number of really crappy summers in a row. Has that got something to do with it too? Yeah, I mean, last year was incredibly bad. I think the worst summer on record, the worst drownings in the year since 96. I think with swimming lessons, it's something that a lot of us are quite worried about. My children, I've got young children and their learn to swim was interrupted as well. I think it's not something we are yet seeing in the statistics. Uh, you know, we have had some children drown this summer, not as many as, as adults, and often for very young children, not knowing how to swim just because they're so little is one of the causal factors, um, including, you know, access not being restricted to water and parents not supervising those kind of things. I think it's something that we are concerned will show itself in a couple of generations. And just... To break it down, because I think when we we hear about drownings in Australia, we all imagine that scenario we started out talking about, which is getting stuck at the beach. But where actually do most of our drownings happen? So during summer, it really is still the coast. Uh, You know, it's the typical thing that people do. They head to the beach on their holidays. But throughout the year, um, and it's been this way for 20, 30 years in Australia, across a year, the leading drowning location is actually rivers, creeks and streams. They have their own hazards that you can't see because they're often all under the water. So submerged objects, Mm. uh, strong currents, slippery um, banks, cold water. And they often can be in in regional or rural locations, quite isolated locations where your mobile phone might not even work and calling for help might take a long time. Uh, And tragically, particularly at rivers, unlike beaches, at rivers we see a lot of alcohol involved. There's not a lot of enforcement if you're driving your boat drunk in the river as if you were doing that on Sydney Harbour. Um, And while beaches are alcohol-free zones, rivers are not the same. So we tragically see alcohol involved in a lot of river drownings as well. Mm. So I guess I'd urge people to show the same respect that they show the beach to our rivers and lakes and dams. Do you know if last year's record rainfalls and flooding in inland areas had anything to do with the record numbers of drownings? We're in a triple La Nina, um, so we did have a lot of rainfall and there were quite a number of flood-related drowning deaths last year. I think one of the key things is there are often cars that either intentionally drive into or get swept into flood water. Often our roads don't get closed, so they are still legally open, but people tending to take that chance and drive through floodwaters 
when you don't know the stability or the integrity of the road base underneath and you don't know how your car is going to fare against the current, that is the scenario we tragically see time and again with flood-related drownings. And I would urge people to have a look. There's some research actually done at my university a number of years ago now at UNSW that showed it's just 20 centimetres of water is needed to get a four-wheel drive moving, basically. That just that little amount of water under the tyres can lift a vehicle and it starts to float away. So even if you think you've got a four-wheel drive, even if you think you've got a powerful vehicle, it really doesn't take a lot of water for your car to start moving. Uh, so I would really encourage people, as they say in Queensland, if it's flooded, forget it. Just don't take your chances and just wait. That was Dr. Amy Pedden, Research Fellow in Drowning at the University of New South Wales, and some really important lessons to be learned there, Katrina. Yeah, it's going to make me rethink, you know, when I go to the beach with my kids, what I pack, um, even with my partner, I guess, you know, because anyone can get stuck in a rip. It doesn't just have to be children. But also the mindset around when someone goes out to rescue someone else, you know, you need to have them in mind as well. Maybe flag down a surfer or somebody with a boogie board and just be, you know, have that at front of mind as well. Yeah, two big things jumped out for me. One was if you're going to jump in, only do it with a flotation device. And the other thing was that treat that rescuer, if you're the third party watching on, treat that rescuer as a drowning victim as well. They could be just as likely to drown or even more in some cases than the person they went in for. Listener.